0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So Jonah 1, to 1-17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, what should we do um, to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Father God, I just pray for Steve as he comes and talks to us, Lord. And I, yeah, I just pray that you just use the words and um, that he speaks, Lord, just to speak to each of us, Lord, that we would go away and apply what we've learned and we'll remember it throughout the week and, um, yeah, coming weeks, Lord, that, yeah, you just speak to us in this time. Yeah.
1: Oh, man, great. Good to be with you in Jonah chapter one again. It's not a mistake. We're doing part two in Jonah chapter one. Navigating the storms, uh, which seems appropriate for the weekend we've had. Um, And it also seems appropriate to talk about storms and sea because the famous endurance of Ernest Shackleton was discovered 107 years after it sunk this week, reviving the amazing story of the Kildare man. Uh, and his epic adventure and, more importantly, his epic survival in the Antarctic. The only storm I can remember being in was one when I used to visit Ireland growing up, and we used to visit my family on a farm in uh, in what was then the outskirts of Dublin. It's now just part of Dublin. and. Uh, one time we came in and you'd come from Hollyhead in Wales all the way over to Dunleary before this is before Dublin Port became the main port. Dunleary was the main port. And it was such a violent storm that we couldn't come in to, to, to Dunleary. And we were blown down the Irish coast and had to come in at Rossleer down in Wexford. And I remember just being so excited by this storm because I was young. And the boat was like this and we were like flying down banisters, you know, on the boat. And it was like such a long night. And it was just like, I was was happy. Anyway, my parents didn't think it was so exciting. Um, But for me, it was exciting. Um, Well, Jonah chapter one is all about a storm. Actually, it's about three storms. Three storms? What are the three storms? Let's have a look. Storm one. God's storm. The physical storm. Verse four, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. There's a physical storm because the Lord sent a great wind. The second storm, I'm going to call the sailor's storm, the fear storm. Verse five, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. The physical storm out there created an internal storm in here, can I face my death? And the answer was no. They all cried out to their own gods. They didn't have an anchor in the storm when it came to facing their potential mortality. And it's often the way the storms of the world, whether the war in Europe or the years of COVID that we've been through, can cause an internal storm of fear. And we have to discover, have we got an anchor to help us through these storms. The third storm. We've thought about the physical storm, which was God's storm. We've thought about the sailor storm, which was the fear storm. The third storm is, I'm gonna call Jonah's storm, which is an identity storm. The sailors say to him, so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making the trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land you see the storm beneath all the other storms was the storm in jonah's heart which meant he was running something was so intense in jonah's heart that he would run from god and that's why god had sent a physical storm who was jonah and was jonah willing to be who god wanted him to be there's a storm of identity going on in the heart of jonah that's why he's running. Where is he running from? Where is he running to? Who is he? What's going on on the inside? That's what the book of Jonah is actually all about. It's how God saves the Ninevites. It's how God saves Jonah from the storm within. So let's think about navigating the storms, both the ones out there that reveal the ones in here by answering three questions. Why storms come into our lives? What storms reveal in our lives? And how God steals storms in our lives why God why storms come into our lives storms come into our lives for two reasons first of all sin and second of all sinners first of all storm comes into our lives because of sin now I must be careful that you don't mishear me not all storms come into our lives because of sin I'm going to reflect on that in a moment But every sin and every act of disobedience against God brings trauma into our lives because we're going against who God made us to be. We're going against our nature, the nature God gave us. We're going against God, our creator. So when you sin, a storm is attached to it. But it might be like cancer. You can go undetected for months. You don't know it, that's what happens you you, you you walk away from God you run away from God you you, you know you break one of God's standards and, and you think it's okay and but a little storm is brewing and it might go undetected for months like cancer does but slowly it's destroying you and the symptoms will show and it could be too late as one person put it sin is the suicidal action of the will upon itself when you sin, you sow a destructive power into your very being that grows and grows and grows, and it will start to cause real damage. Famously, God says in the Book of Numbers, "Be sure that your sin will find you out." Jonah's running. Be sure you, you can't run forever. Don't miss himy. E. The Bible does not say that every difficulty in our life is because of the result of sin, but it does teach that sin has a mighty storm attached to it. And Jonah chapter one teaches that in a vivid, graphic way. It may seem small, it may seem innocent, it may seem so normal to everyone else in the culture but if you're running from God, if you're disobeying God, if you're ignoring God, if you're building your life on anything other than God, you can be sure your sin will find you out and a storm will come at some point. Let Jonah once teach you that all sin has a mighty storm attached to it even if you can't see it initially. Secondly, you might be caught up in a storm that is not of your doing, but someone else is doing. So there are storms attached to your own sin, but there are storms attached to sinners. For Jonah, the storm was a consequence of his own sin, but the sailors were caught up in Jonah's sin. Most storms in our lives are actually not the consequence of our own sin, but the unavoidable consequences of living in a fallen, troubled world. And the situation in Ukraine could not make a clearer you know, clearer image of that at the moment. They're caught up in a sin that's not their own. And yet notice, 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 the storm the sailors are in, whilst not of their own doing, but Jonah's sin, led them to faith in God. And so here's a key lesson. The Bible does not say that every storm in our lives as a result of sin but it does teach that for the christian every difficulty can reduce the power of sin over your heart every storm can wake you up to a truth you never otherwise would have discovered and that seems to be way that the book of jonah is told like what is jonah doing in the storm he's asleep he needs waking up i mean he's waking up physically but it's as if he needs waking up to spiritual reality. You don't know what's going on. You can't even face yourself, Jonah. You can't face the world. You're sleeping. You're just sort of running and you're hoping it will go away and you need to break it up. And so storms can wake us up to spiritual reality. They're like smelling salts. You know, yesterday, if you're watching the rugby, James Ryan, after a few minutes, got concussed by Charlie Ewells, the England player. It it comes off. And if they get a really bad concussion, what do they do? Smelling salts. A sharp smell that wakes you up. That's a storm. It can wake you up. So why do storms come into our lives? Because of sin. Every sin has a storm attached to it, even if you can't see it initially, but also because of sinners living in a fallen world where evil things happen and we get caught up in those. But those things can be good in the sense they can wake us up. So what do storms reveal in our lives? Did you have a fragile anchor that you have a fragile anchor. When the storms come, you find out how deep and secure your anchor is. For Jonah and the sailors, they had fragile anchors and they're quickly blown to and fro, unable to handle the storm within. What's an anchor? It's your deepest trust and your deepest meaning. That's your anchor, your deepest trust and your deepest meaning. What do you turn to when life is tough? What do you tell yourself when your confidence is low? That's your anchor. Ah, yeah, but I'm this. I did that. This. What do you turn to when you're feeling low in confidence? It's your anchor. What gives you your meaning and significance? For the sailors, their anchor, their hope was whatever gods. They cried out to whatever gods, their pagan religions, and said, this would be good for you. And they cried out, and their gods couldn't help them in the face of the mighty storm. They were insufficient anchors, and they were left fearful. Fearful. Now, there's numerous gods we can try and anchor our lives to. The Romans had a god named Mercury, the god of commerce, to whom they sacrificed animals to ensure wealth and prosperity. We may laugh at such primitive religious practices, but have we changed? No one doubts that financial success and stability can become a god, an unquestioned ultimate goal for either an individual's life or a whole society to which persons and moral standards and relationships and communities are sacrificed. And when a financial storm comes, as it did in 2008, a financial storm out there and people just melted. They could not, they had no anchor. It's not a sufficient anchor for a storm. The Romans also had a god called Venus, the goddess of beauty. No one in Dublin, I know, is building a shrine to her and sacrificing animals to her in order to be beautiful and sexually uh, fulfilled and fruitful. And yet, you tell me, Are not untold numbers of men and women obsessed with body image and enslaved to unrealized ideas of sexual fulfillment? And this this false God has uh, has, has, uh, has told untold damage no more than in recent times when the bottom of the pyramid that leads to violence against women starts with the innocent viewing of porn and objectifying them or the innocent joke by the boys about them. Or the Greek God Kratos, the God of strength, might, power and sovereign rule is more alive than ever in our world and in Europe, isn't it? And the three siblings of Kratos apparently, according to Greek mythology, Nike, Victory, a Force and Zelos, Rivalry. Those gods are evident today in the war in Ukraine than ever before. But aren't they also at war in your hearts, those gods? Don't you long to be first? Don't you long for power and control? Don't you get jealous when others get ahead? Don't you want life just to be a bit more sorted for you? Don't you sometimes lust for acclaim when someone else seems to get the acclaim? Don't you want respect and honor? Kratos and his siblings are warring again, not just in Ukraine, but in our lives. We get forceful, we get angry, we get jealous, we get competitive. For the sailors, their anchor was their pagan gods. The fear didn't come from the sea. The fear came because their anchor was not sufficient to handle the storm of the sea, to help them face death. But as Jonah 1 ends, the sailors let their fears wake them up to the futility of their false gods, who have no power over the storm. What about you? When storm comes, the fears that rise in your heart, will you just take a moment to pay attention to the fears and go, what is this revealing about the false gods that I anchor my life to that are being revealed is insufficient right now? And if you will, you can become great and stable and secure. As the sailors, you can find the living God in the storm. So if the storm reveals the false gods that the sailors trusted in, what did it reveal in Jonah's life? It revealed a shallow spiritual identity. Who is Jonah? Notice the order of the reply. We had a little debate about this at our city group, but I'm going to go with it. He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What comes first to Jonah, his nationality or his God? I am a Hebrew, oh, and I worship the God his nationality came first what really defined him was his tribe and we know that actually not just from these verses because why is he running he doesn't want to go to another tribe he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because they're the enemies and he hates them he doesn't want God to have mercy on them he has a shallow spiritual identity I said this last week God commissioning Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against its wickedness so that they might repent would be a bit like God commissioning President Zelensky of Ukraine to go to the Kremlin in Moscow to call Putin to lay down his arms, to turn from his wickedness, so God could have mercy on him. So the book of Jonah asks Jonah, and it asks you, are you okay with God loving your worst enemy? Are you? That's the book of Jonah. Are you okay with God loving your worst enemy? Jonah's like, no, I'm not okay with it. He'd rather die than love his enemies. And we see that from two things. In verse 12, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Question, we debated this at Citigroup. Is that an act of faith or an act of defiance? I think Jonah's beautifully written. We don't know. Maybe it's ambiguous. But in chapter four, verse three, when God has forgiven the Ninevites, Jonah says, now I want to die. So I think it was an act of defiance. He never wanted, to. he could not stand the thought of God blessing and forgiving the wicked Ninevites. But let's not judge Jonah too quickly. Let's remember why the book is written and how it's to show that we are like Jonah and God wants to get into our hearts. Let's step back a moment. The book of Jonah is full of humor. We might, if we were to classify it today, class it as satire. The story is full of stereotyped characters who ironically do exactly opposite of what you'd expect. The prophet, a man of God, rebels against and can't stand his own God. Huh? Really? The sailors, who are supposed to be immoral pagans, have soft, responsive hearts and turn to God in humility. Really? We'll see in chapter three, the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on earth humbles himself before an eight word sermon, five in Hebrew, so eight in English. And it says even the cows repented. It's humor. Jonah's trying to get in. What what, what does humor do? It takes down your defenses. This is satire. Stories about well-known figures in extreme circumstances using humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. But let the reader be careful. You are the one in the story that God's trying to get to. And me. Be very careful before you judge Jonah. God wants to get our defenses down so we can get into our hearts. And he uses humor. While Jonah is out of touch of his peril, the sailors are extremely alert. While Jonah is thoroughly self-absorbed with his own problems, they seek the common good of everyone in the boat. Each of them pray to their own gods. Jonah can't even pray. The book of Jonah holds up a mirror to whoever would read it and say, in Jonah, we see the worst parts of ourselves magnified. And it should generate humility and self-examination. As has famously been said, there is something I really hate about you that I see in myself. That's the book of Jonah. There's something I really hate about Jonah that's just too close to my own heart. What we fear, like the sailors, reveals who we are. But what we hate reveals something about who we are. So when storms come and Jonah is asked, who is he? His first response is not his identity through faith in the God he worships, but his identity through race. He has a shallow spiritual identity. The sailors are more righteous than Jonah, even though they don't know the living God. I know this as much as anyone else. How easy it is to profess Jesus and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. He's my Lord and my Savior. But day to day, I live for this. This drives me. This is the fears that consume me. I say, yes, Jesus is my God, but this is what really gets me going. Abraham discovered how spiritually shallow his identity was when he lied to the king of Egypt out of fear. Moses discovered how spiritually shallow his identity was when he murdered an Egyptian in rage. David discovered how spiritually shallow his identity was when he lusted after Bathsheba in selfishness. Peter discovered how spiritually shallow his identity was when he said he followed Jesus no matter what, and then he couldn't even stand up to a servant girl. It happens to everyone. It happens to you. It's happened to me. I remember my final year at university. I was doing maths and philosophy, and it was two weeks before my maths exam, and I suddenly realized I was nowhere, and I was, there was panic set in. You know, not just like, okay, I've got to get my head down and work hard. Panic. I you know, couldn't, couldn't concentrate couldn't sleep definitely couldn't study panic had set in why the thought of failing my exam would mean i was a failure i had a shallow spiritual identity i said i trusted jesus but what really mattered is whether i passed that exam i remember a number of years later now this is going to sound like i'm making a big name for myself but you'll probably laugh at me Believe it or not, I used to represent Great Britain playing ultimate Frisbee, okay? It's not a big deal. Dogs play ultimate Frisbee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good. Okay. You've understood that that's not a big deal. Okay. We were playing in the World Championships in Vancouver, and uh, I was, uh, w- we were playing in the quarterfinals against the Australians. Great Britain had never been to a semifinal of the, uh, of the Ultimate Frisbee World Championships, and we beat them in the quarterfinals. In fact, we destroyed them. It was wonderful. But... We were through to the semi-final and the first time ever in history. You know, we'd trained for it, we'd lived for it, we'd raised money to go there, all that kind of stuff. And yet I was the only one of the 27-man squad that didn't get on the pitch for the quarter-final. Could I celebrate really from my heart? Not really. I was shattered. And I was pastoring a church. I was shattered. I had a shallow spiritual identity. I said I loved Jesus and he was my... I remember going back to my... The, in, in British Columbian and the university, getting out Philippians chapter three. Where Paul says, whatever it was gained to me, I consider lost. I used to count my worth in this. And I, used to, I, I remember again, I can't say that right now. I'd never been on the sideline for a big game and a storm began to brew in my heart. Who was Steve? What made him valuable? Where was his significance and meaning? It was then that I realized how much I'd relied on my sporting achievements to bolster my identity and how spiritually shallow I was. What I was going through was far less significant than what Jonah was going through, but just a bigger storm of fear and hate, the hate of not being on the pitch had come in my heart. Tim Keller says this, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racist and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this comes because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity from his chapter on Jonah. It takes a storm for you to discover your anchor and how good it is, your deepest trust, your deepest meaning, who you really are. We're so often blind to our self-chosen idea. Oh, I worship Jesus, but really? Really? Something else is anchoring our lives and we cannot face up to it. We cannot even admit it. We can't even see it. We don't even, we ignore the fears. We ignore the hatred, but it takes a storm to wake us up. In a storm, we discover we've trusted far too much in our own wisdom than God's because now we don't have any wisdom that can navigate the storm. We thought we knew best. We thought we knew what would make us happy. We thought we knew how to be in control and secure our future. We thought we knew what a flourishing life meant. We had our goals. We had our plan. We had it all mapped out and a storm revealed God was not at the center of a lot of that. God isn't being nasty. He's not condemning Jonah. He's not wanting to shoot him down. He's wanting to draw him back to God, but also back to who Jonah really is, or Jonah could be. He wants to become his anchor. He wants him to stop running and find freedom. Because here is the good news. In the storm, just as the sailors discovered, we can discover God in a far deeper, more wonderful, rich, and freeing way than we ever could have done without the storm. We can find that he really is the only anchor that can get you through life. And every other anchor of, of relationships, of money, of success, they're, not, they're, not, they're all important, but they can't anchor your life in the same way God can. So third question, how does God steal? What, why storms come into our lives? Because of sin and sinners. What do storms reveal in our lives? Our false gods, our shallow Christian identities. That what we anchor our lives to are not sufficient. We need new anchors. So how does God still the storm? What did it take for God to still the storm? Look at verse 15 there. They took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. Was one translation. This th- the sea ceased from its raging. The moment Jonah is plunged into the storm, the raging sea is calmed. Someone had to be thrown into the storm. Someone had to be sacrificed to save others. Remind you of another story. One greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said, where Jonah failed, he succeeded. He would not prefer death than loving his enemies. He would love his enemies to death. He'd not fear or hate anyone. He had a freedom that no one could touch. So much so that he'd not try to hold on to his life, but lose it. And on the the cross, he'd be thrown into the ultimate storm for us. When the writer says the sea ceased from raging, it's as if the anger of the storm Was a real expression of God's anger towards Jonah's sin and all sin that needed to be satisfied. God is righteously angry at sin and sinners. How does that righteous anger that is represented in this hostile sea find satisfaction? Through Jesus, who's thrown into that storm of God's wrath for all our sin and rebellion. And what would it mean? What would it mean that Jesus was thrown into the storm for you and me? It would mean we can face ourselves and be honest about our fears and our hatred because we know we are loved and we are forgiven. So we can let down the guard and go, Yeah, this is what's really going on. It would mean we can be honest about our anchors that we attach ourselves to and slowly and surely say, Jesus, forgive me. And may I attach my life more and more to you as my anchor. It would mean we could stop running. From the things God asks us to do that we find hard. Because even though we find his ways can be hard at first, we know that if he died for me, he must be loving and good. And even though I find that thing he wants me to do or not do so hard, if you died for me, God, you must have loving motives for asking me that. Jonah doubted God's goodness when asked to do something he didn't want to do. The cross shows you once and for all that God is good. And God is for you. So you can let go and trust him for those things you find hard. It would mean you can face any storm in life now because not even death. The sailors didn't have an answer to death, we do. Our God died and he rose. And whatever storm might come, financial storm, personal storm, a sense of failure storm and loneliness storm, these storms are all challenges to us and we need to be careful how we navigate them but we can know ultimately we are safe because Jesus took the biggest storm we could ever face to to guarantee us eternal security. No storm will ultimately harm you for those in Jesus. And it would mean when we consider the bigger call on Jonah's life and the series we're thinking about as a church of being sent to the city, and Andrew prayed it, a city that's complex and increasingly expensive, and we just say, I just want to run from the city, it's just so hard. And God says, no, no, I'll provide I'll be with you. Don't take the easy option. Commit, stick around. Romans 8 says, if he did not withhold his own son, how much more will he not give us all things? God will be with us as we consider and feel that call to a complex and expensive and challenging and wonderful city. Jesus faced the ultimate storm for you. He'll help you face all other storms. So let him calm the storms in your heart by his love one greater than jonah is here let him be your anchor and nothing else amen let's stand and i'll invite the band back we've got a bit of time to respond which is lovely and so we'll sing and then i'm going to come up and just lead a moment of reflection so uh, let me just say a quick prayer but then i want to take a moment for us to think about repenting of the false anchors and giving ourselves again to Jesus as our true anchor. So let me say a brief prayer, and then we'll sing, and then then I'll come back and pray again. Father, we, we thank you for Jonah chapter one. We thank you for the humor. We thank you for the way the story is just this wonderful story that captures us up in it. And we thank you that just as with Jonah, you were not there to condemn him or attack him. You wanted to set him free. So we pray now as we respond in song, that the words of this passage and the words you've spoken to us would continue to set us free from those false anchors that can only ever hold us down. They can never set us free. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.